Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. And I have a truly fantastic edition of Backstory for you today. In 1950, writer and critic A.A. Phillips wrote an essay entitled The Cultural Cringe, examining Australia's uncomfortable relationship with its artists and intellectuals. A lot may have changed in Australia since the 1950s, perhaps not as much as we would like, but the cultural cringe very definitely remains and it's affecting how we look at ourselves and our writers. Now researchers are looking into ways they can help high school teachers to promote Australian literature in schools and joining me to talk about their research and the cultural cringe that motivated it are Melbourne University Academics Dr. Lucy Buzzacott and Associate Professor Larissa McLean-Davies. That's coming up later in the hour, but very soon. When Freya hears the news that a young girl has gone missing, all her old fears come flooding back. But is the threat real or is she just haunted by her traumatic past? Amy helped liberate her new little sister from a cruel world to join her family in the clearing. But when it's clear the little girl is desperate to leave, Amy starts to question absolutely everything. And so begins in the clearing the chilling new thriller by J.P. Pomare, author of Call Me Evie. He'll be joining me very soon to talk about weaving killer plots, writing The Darkness and the very real cult that inspired his new novel. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. I wear the skin of others the way you wear clothes, not in a Silence of the Lambs kind of way, although now that I think about it, I do have something of a dungeon and a dog that I care about more than I do other people. No, this layer of skin I wear is pure metaphor. Freya is always hiding who she is, living in fear of a past that has never quite left her. And when a young girl goes missing, it seems like the ghosts of her past are coming back to haunt her. Amy is also at odds with her world. The only one she's ever known is the clearing, with her bleach blonde brothers and sisters and her all-knowing mother. But when her new sister arrives, she brings Amy's sense of reality crashing down and so chillingly begins JP Pomare's latest thriller in the clearing keeps you constantly guessing what's around the corner as it navigates the world of child abduction and cults in a story based loosely on an all too real one JP Pomare welcome to backstory thanks for having me on it's quite the ride this this book uh, and right from the start i feel like you're very much 
in the sort of hearts and minds of the protagonists and it's a really sort of interesting interweaving of two kind of stories and two two narratives that you're building up uh, to a completely unexpected conclusion and it's really you know something that I sort of wondered at and I, I had to flick back over quite a few of the the sections that I read once I got to the end of the book to see how you'd laid all the plans out I want to talk to you firstly about you know how you structure an incredible sort of you know thriller of this nature yeah I think you've I mean you hit the nail on the head when you say structure I think um I get this question a lot how do you set up twists and how do you keep suspense and keep the you know the narrative taut and compelling uh and this book anything that is clever about it is all found in the structure so you can reverse engineer it and figure out the um you know the breadcrumbs or the ways that um expectations have been set up to later be subverted and and i think it's all about for me it's all about structure so one thing that really unlocked this book was when i realized what the structure needed to be um, and it's not so simple as that, but when you have the, the broad kind of narrative structure, aka, you know, um, what order of events you're going to show from whose perspective uh, and where you're going to access the story, whose, whose narrative perspective and point of view you're going to access it from, um, when you have these things in place, it's just a matter of um, getting it all down on the page from there because, um, you know, there's you can conceal information and you can do it in a certain way that sets these things up and keeps it suspenseful and keeps the reader in the dark but it becomes manipulative if you at a certain point if you're too clever about it so um, for me it was yeah it was it was all about the structure you can definitely see because uh, I at no stage did I ever feel pulled out of the story or like you know you've kind of shoehorned a device in there so it obviously kind of involves a lot of, you know, rewriting and smoothing over and smoothing over to kind of get that seamlessness. You're also juggling two different plots, um, which is another layer of complexity. So I really want to ask, you know, just how much time do you spend on that bit alone to just kind of really sort of, you know, once you've done the writing, I presume presume you're sort of writing these two plots separately and then winding them in together. How do you just sit down and go, all right, now I really need to, you know, nail this structure so it doesn't feel shoehorned at all. Yeah, I think the two narratives, if we can focus on that for a moment, are, I mean, I wrote them concurrently um, because lots of people think, do you write your, if you've got two um, pretty distinct narrative threads um, from two perspectives, do you write them individually and merge them, you know, later on? And this is something I wonder about other writers as well. But for me, because the two narrative threads sort of mingle and there's kind of events that, you know, sort of are in conversation with each other, let's say. Um, for me, I had to write them concurrently and it's that thing about finding the right sort of uh, the right flow or that right kind of tempo, you know, like one um, chapter might end and it's night time and then the other chapter will end and it's night time and so... Or, you know, there's certain events that kind of correlate and and, this, and you want them to, as I said, complement each other. And that doesn't happen unless you are sort of mindful of what's happening in the other narrative thread and sort of wind them in that way. Um, I would also say um, when I was writing this, one thing I was really considerate about um, was voice and making sure they had distinct mm. voices, um, which can, you know, when you are writing 
two characters at the same time, two different perspectives, it's really easy for one voice can, to contaminate the other. So um, I would always make sure I had a break between or I would go back and read large sections where the voice is particularly distinct. So the part you read earlier, uh, Freya's voice, that would have been probably my reference point, the early stuff where she's explaining to the reader who she is. Um, that's the, where I would go back to capture a voice when I was two-thirds of the way through the manuscript. I do want to, to go back to that original character, but before we leave the discussion of structure, I do want to just uh, note that like many sort of, I guess, of the great sort of well-structured narrative-driven pieces of fiction, you, you use a lot of different writing forms. You know, you're very much, you know, relying heavily on that sort of interior monologue in the first person, which is an incredibly compelling device. But you also use things like found diary entries. Uh, you're using, I think, at one stage, a news article, just yeah various different little elements like that is that sort of you know almost does that come with the territory is that sort of a necessity of of writing this type of a book to keep things moving yeah yeah I think I mean you definitely get more um, freedom I find as soon as you are considered a quote-unquote crime writer for instance Um, I think I think the rules in, say, literary fiction generally are set quite early, even with books that are really quite experimental. So I think of a book like Flames by Robbie Arnott, um, you know, that every chapter is a different kind of genre and stuff. But you still know that from, like, the second or third mm. chapter. Um, whereas I think in crime fiction you can – you have slightly more – or or in com- more commercial fiction, you have slightly more um, room to kind of – um, or, or a bit more freedom to, to access different perspectives later in the book or, you know, there's a – chapter that's just a podcast transcript that's you know? right um, and 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 when i even when i wrote that i'm like there's no way they're going to publish this but i'm just going to put it in i love that because it you know very much had that so it was like the true crime podcast which of course is a staple of the genre yeah yeah fantastic yeah and it and it's just about um building up this kind of world as well you know i think for me the first thing books should do in this day and age when we are competing in the attention economy is um if someone gives your book a chance, you know, if they start to read it, you don't want to break that trust and and you don't want them to um, – you want them to finish the book and you want them to, you know, not be tempted constantly to pick up their phone or go, do something else. So for me, having these little um, asides and these little things that are still surprising that aren't necessarily pure narrative surprises but just stru- structural, you know, things that are kind of a bit exciting or a bit different, a bit novel – I think that's quite important, um, you know, for me anyway. And in books that I've read, I do find shifts that don't give me whiplash, you know, just little subtle asides and things. I find they do um, retain my attention more and I'm, and I'm more intrigued about the story. Absolutely. If you just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author J.P. Pomare about his new book, A Thriller in the Clearing. It's a uh, a really uh, fascinating premise that you start with. Uh, you are kind of interweaving the stories of Freya, who is clearly uh, a woman who's experienced some great trauma in her past, and she slowly starts to reveal some elements of that. She's a fantastic sort of lead character. There's two lead characters, I should say, but she's a fantastic lead in the sense that she really gives you um, this complicated female character. She's, uh, you know, she's got this 
you know, deep sense of, you know, her own kind of violence uh, that she's trying to suppress or a secret that she wants to hide from people. It's sort of a, you know, I guess a, a character that has a richness in it that we sometimes lack in representations of women in crime. Can you talk a bit about Freya? Yeah, yeah. So Freya, um, I mean, there's, I think this isn't a spoiler, but very early on you learn that she's overprotective of her son because she has lost a child in, a, in her past. She lost her first son, um, and you slowly you learn how and why. Um, and I think, you know, again, it's really hard to talk about without spoilers, but I think what was quite important for me is that um, it, she wasn't a hero or a villain or, you know, like I, I, th- I just don't like that quite often in... Um, certainly in crime novels, but in um, even commercial fiction, you find uh, we we tend to get too close to absolutes with characters, um, and so I wanted this kind of negotiated kind of grey area where um, where the the reader might recognise something of themselves in her and might really inhabit her character and identify with her, but can also acknowledge um, pro- you know that some of her behaviour might be problematic or and, and you know so it's about. Um, it's about making sure the back her backstory was complete and realistic, uh, and that that would translate to the sort of psychological landscape mm-hmm. she had. Um, so that there's that kind of internal cause and effect, if that makes sense. We're also start, you know, that richness of an antihero is really starting to land. I think these days with with books, and particularly with you know female characters being at the centre of them, where they're not kind of delivered as either a you know unmitigated hero or a you know, or more likely a victim. Um, so she is very definitely a, a much more complicated character. Uh, and as to is Amy, she's, uh, um, you know, becomes clear very, very quickly that she is a, a child in a cult. It's the only world she's ever known. Um, the decisions that she makes, she still, you know, in her interior monologue takes responsibility for she doesn't just Mm. think of it as something that she's um, being programmed to do she has an internal conflict between trying to do the right thing by her parents and minders but feeling like maybe it's not always the right thing so she's very much a young girl who's coming into teenagehood and starting to as many people do um, question some of her choices yeah. Um, so, tell us about Amy and where she came from. So, Amy is yeah. So she's a um, she's the eldest of the children in a cult, and I think um, you know I think there's this thing, and I speak about this a lot, where people read this book or they think about cults and they think that they could they themselves couldn't they would never be like that. You know, they would be smarter, or they you know I think it's easy to discount um, you know people's experience in a cult and, and just sort of put almost pass blame onto them like you like they wouldn't themselves be brainwashed if they were in that position and so I wanted to make it really clear how sort of um you know how difficult it is to see outside of the world if that's all you all you've known um and so Amy you know she she has grown up in this setting um she's been you know overdosed on LSD exposed to um pretty sort of uh well, I'd say violent acts. She has been um, told and and brainwashed into believing that her mum is a reincarnation of Jesus Christ, and so on and so forth. So, the the strength of Amy is in her doubt and in her, um, you know, I would say, she, you know, she is clearly resilient. But the fact that even within this environment, um, she can summon a level of scepticism, 
Um, and that's largely brought about by the introduction of a new child who speaks about the outside world like a much better place than the, the environment she's in, which is the cult. And so, yeah, when I was writing, Amy, it was this difficult thing of trying to um, write a realistic character. And, and I had to work pretty closely with a psychologist who helped me with Call Me Evie as well. Um, and I, it was just about making sure that her behavior was a realistic because if you are in the environment, it, it's very, you know, it does take something from the outside world as a sort of catalyst to consider the possibility that everything you've believed until then might not be completely true. Um, and so it does take a lot to do that. So for me, it was, yeah, like I said, make sure I was working closely with a psychologist. So mm. her behavior was realistic and her experience of the world was realistic. So I do want to talk about this, uh, you know, obviously a big part of this story is about cults and this particular cult. Uh, what kind of drew you to it? Because there's a ve- some very obvious references to the family in here, um, which people might uh, be aware of that cult. Um, talk a little bit about the, the kind of, you know, influence that it's had on this book. I think there's some, some particular things that I'm thinking about yeah yeah absolutely i mean for me i talk about structure a lot and unlocking this this project um i spoke with a ex-cult member um at, at one stage which was incredibly helpful um and yeah reading a book called the family uh which was out with scribe a few years ago um by chris johnston and rose someone i forget her name but um it's uh yeah so that was sort of my you know for months and months that was my bible i was reading that a lot i'd marked it up i'm not sure where that copy is i think i lent it to a friend and i'd love it back at some stage but um <laughs> yeah so i mean it was it, i was just completely uh for lack of a better word um enamored with and Hamilton Byrne, you know, like I, I was completely and utterly fascinated by it. And I could see myself very easily, uh, you know, given the right circumstances, if I was in the late 60s, early 70s and I encountered it, I could see myself being at least intrigued by her idea, her, her ideas, her aura, that kind of charisma or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so I was just fascinated by how I, I, in that period, the 60s and 70s, how a woman um, founded a cult and led all these uh, academics, psychologists, medical professionals. Um, there were lawyers. There were there were very upper middle class, largely uh, monocultural, so largely Caucasian people who were involved in this cult. So when we think of cults, we tend to think of particularly new age cults, mm. we tend to think of disillusioned, um, anti-war sentiment. You, you know, there's all sorts of ideas associated with kind of, you know, the hippie movement, for lack of a better word. Um, and so she was sh- sh- sort of bucked the trend and she was attracting all these middle and upper middle class people. Um, and again, it was that thing that in that era, it was a woman who was doing this when we have, you know, the Jim Joneses and, um, the, the, you know, we have most cults were led by men and still when we look at the historical record Mm -hmm. for that era there are very few um, cults and certainly none quite as successful if that's the right word Um, 
And it remains one where, you know, I guess there's still conjecture about it and her influence on, you know, because obviously her her influence reached into establishment um, people. So whether or not she kind of, I guess, had influence over uh, institutions that may have helped to protect her and what she was doing uh, is also something you've kind of echoed in your book. Yeah. So to the, um, that kind of quite creepy thing of her uh, bleaching all the children's hair so that they were all tiny little blonde-haired <laughs> children, which is a particularly kind of um, culty image uh, thanks to the family. Yeah. I mean, there's... I mean, I, I don't think we can be sued anymore because she died last year, but maybe we can't. Um, but <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't see her doing that, <laughs> talking about the similarities between what she did in this book. I yeah. doubt anyone would want to own that even if she were alive. No, and I feel like the, the estate is being sued by the two, you know, former children and stuff. So hopefully they don't have money for a comprehensive legal um, suit against my publisher. But anyway, you know, it's inspired by, not based on, but I would say there is a character that's very distinctly... Uh, Anne Hamilton Byrne, um, her, her, the character's name's Adrian. Um, I would say, you know, the bleach treatments, the use of LSD, the isolation, um, the interaction with the outside world. There's many things that are parallels. But in saying that, you know, there are the, t- the timeline's different. There are there are things that I've fictionalised for the sake of the story. Um, but yeah, you're right to say the institutions in which she had this kind of insidious grip or reach, and there was speculation about the police and the, mm. and local government because it took a very long time for them to take action and investigate this. Even though many people knew what was happening, um, she escaped when they were under investigation, whether or not she was tipped off. And there's, you know, what what I sought to do also in this book was find answers, if only for myself, find answers for these questions that when Anne Hamilton Byrne did become, you know, have this really serious dementia, all these answers were lost. Um, And so I wanted to answer certain questions. What happened with the money? Who was still loyal and visiting her? Um, You know, what, how far was her reach? Did she have people in in the police, for instance? Uh, We have to keep in mind, this is a woman who um, had, I think it was like a $10,000 fine and time served, which was months maybe perhaps even weeks you know so she her punishment for what was essentially um you know the destruction of the psychological landscape of 30 odd children um and you know many of whom have had serious issues as adults um you know her punishment for that was a couple of months in in a jail and ten thousand dollars these are so, certainly issues that you kind of raise in the book. But I think one thing I, I really do want to talk about that, you know, really well-written crime and, and thrillers have that deeper, you know, questioning about society at their heart. And you very much do do that. You're trying to look at the complexity of trauma um, at the fact that institutions often fail children, mm. particularly that, that in fact the cult instilled this deep-seated um, fear of police. Um, and that's not unfounded in Freya's life as well as in Amy's life. They've both experienced things that, you know, that maybe aren't untrue um, is kind of one of the things that, that sort of rings throughout this book. Um, so I feel like, uh, you know, you've really done an excellent job of that. I do want to address one last thing before I let you go because you did mention literary fiction and commercial fiction and thrillers um, or genre crime as distinct kind of categories. And it's something that, you know, I always like jump at the chance to, to talk about because I think one of the great, great misapprehensions 
you know, is that literary fiction is somehow more highbrow or better written um, in some way. Like, you know, obviously that's not true when you read a book like this. You know, the line-by-line writing is is excellent. Um, What would you say the distinct difference between those genres are? And do you think it's more of a marketing term than anything else? I think think a lot of it comes out in the editing as well. So I would also point out, you know, this is a distinction that writers ought not to make. It's usually up to your publisher and your editor who will decide who consider the commercial realities of pushing this book out to the market and where it's it's going to fit and so on and so forth but i would say the biggest distinction for me is the sort of interiority um how much time we spend uh just considering the, the actual characters living inside the characters um i would also say um you know there's there's how books are paced as well is really important um a friend of mine says, I can tell when I'm reading a literary book because nothing's happened, but I still feel entertained. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a pretty good way of putting it as well. But I think, you know, I, d- I don't, th- I think it's just a distinction we make for um, the sake of the end user, you know, so where they go, where they go to look for books and the, mm. um, what kind of experience they want to have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I am myself quite, self-deprecating about the fact that you know i'm often shelved in um in the crime section and so um i i think it's part of the problem is the writers you know all my friends who including you know the likes of say jocks are wrong or mark brandy who sort of now kind of own this crime you know writer you know and you know win or shortlist for crime prizes and go to crime festivals and things and um i think part of the problem is you know, we do we do kind of talk ourselves down a lot in this industry, particularly mm-hmm. Australian writers, and so we all kind of talk about literary fiction like as though it's a more important um, contribution to the art form. And whether or not that's true, I think we don't do ourselves much um, of a favour when we're always sort of, you know, talking ourselves down. So I think it, that, that that distinction between literary and commercial um, it's probably smaller than, or it's pro- it's not doesn't really exist. But I think when you are shelved in the crime section, it does it means something different to the readers for sure. I, I think one thing I would definitely say about this book is I would not hesitate to recommend it to anyone. But I feel like by having a sort of driving narrative, it makes it more accessible maybe to a, a wider group of people without losing any of the richness yeah, thank of you. the text. Well, thank you very much, um, JP Pamare, for uh, speaking with me today. I could keep going on <laughs> for some time, but I'm afraid uh, that's all we have time for. Excellent. Thanks again. Thanks so much. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. There is a significant phase in Henry Handel Richardson's Myself When Young when she found herself stuck in a passage of Richard Mahoney, which would not come right. She remarked to her husband, How did I ever dare write, Maurice Guest, a poor little colonial like me? Our sympathies go out to her, pathetic victim of the cringe. So wrote critic and writer A.A. Phillips in his 1950 essay, The Cultural Cringe. Phillips examined Australia's un- 
uncomfortable relationship with its artists and intellectuals, leaning instead on writers from the UK and US for its cultural imperatives. While some things may have changed since then, perhaps not as much as we would like, now researchers are looking into ways they can help high school teachers to promote Australian literature in schools because the cultural cringe, sadly, very much remains. So joining me to talk about this research and the cultural cringe that motivates it are Melbourne University academics, Dr. Lucy Buzzacott and Associate Professor Larissa McLean-Davies. Lucy, Larissa, welcome to Backstory. Thanks, Mel. Now, I I read through uh, an article that you published um, that is entitled The Enduring Cultural Cringe About Teaching Australian Literature, and I was quite alarmed (laughs) at some of the things that you have been finding out, uh, including, um, you know, among many other disturbing things that Apparently, students are much more likely to be encouraged um, or to get better marks if they're, you know, examining writers that are white and male and not necessarily Australian, or if they are Australian, still white and male. And also that even though in the 1970s um, some work was done to address bias, you know, in the Whitlam era, um, that still hasn't really happened. So, So talk to me about this and why we haven't progressed so much. Thanks, Mel. Uh, It's a really complex problem. I think it's important to say from the outset that uh, many English teachers and schools wouldn't um, wouldn't think that it's their desire to not be teaching Australian literature. But we're in a really interesting period. Um, We've had, uh, as you've pointed out, there's been a a cultural cringe around Australian literature, where we, um, when we had a subject, for instance, when I was at high school, we actually called the subject literature English literature, and Mm. we didn't just mean it was written in English; we meant it it was English, or and that might have extended to North American as well. Part of that problem is actually that uh, we've got to think about the reason we even teach English in uh, a settler society. And the idea was that if you you were teaching English because you wanted to be a bit closer to the mother country, to England. Mm. And so we've got this, you know, you teach English in order to become more English. So we don't often think about that history of the teaching of English in a country like Australia. But that all sits behind um, what it is and why we have this current problem and there's lots of examples and you've you know read the the AA Phillips but there's lots of examples of even professors of literature in Australian universities in the 1940s you know in the 1950s and so on in fact denouncing that Australia even had any literature of its own. It's sort of interesting to see in that AA Phillips essay that he is even pointing out that um, I think to, to quote you know, one particularly objectionable yeah. part. Um, he's saying that, you know, we're much more likely to read from, quote, other Anglo-Saxon countries. The fact that firstly, I mean, he wasn't questioning whether or not we were one, yes. but he was using that as a comparison, which, you know, is very telling, especially when you question the underlying premise of that. Uh, Lucy, you know, really some of these um, these things have been the subject of reviews uh, and, you know, you talk about the fact that back in 2008 the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority uh, mandated, and I'm quoting directly from this article, the teaching of Australian literature at every level from foundation to year 10 in the country's first nas- national curriculum, which sounds really good, but why do you think that that is, you know, not good enough? 
we found that the way that the teaching of Australian literature and the way that mandate is implemented in schools varies quite wild, widely between from school to school and depending on the teachers and the priorities of the school. So that's a mandate, but how that's assessed and how that's um, used within each school varies largely. And we've also had teachers give feedback to us with varied kind of responses as to how they feel about the mandate. Um, There's enduring ideas from our teachers about the quality of Australian literature, the relevance of Australian literature to, to their students. So there needs to be, I think, a stronger understanding around the diversity of Australian literature that we have, because we have a really rich and diverse Australian literature in this country. Absolutely, as we uh, hopefully experience um, on shows on Triple R all the time, um, which is quite focused (laughs) on Australian literature. We never run out of content. Um, If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Melbourne University academics, Dr Lucy Buzzacott and Associate Professor Larissa McLean-Davies. The pair of them, among others, are looking into why we have continued cultural cringe in Australia and with particular reference to the fact that high schools aren't really uh, teaching enough about Australian literature or at least not rewarding those who are delving into the diversity of it. That's something... uh, I want to talk about, Larissa, particularly as I I raised at the top of this interview, one of the most disturbing elements of this for me was this this fact that that people were still being rewarded for, Mm. you know, reading white male um, literature. We know that we now have this wonderful diversity, um, not only in this country, but very definitely growing in our established literary culture. Um, I would say... There's lots of work that still needs to be done. Obviously, uh, places like the Wheeler Centre have reflected that in um, their recent sort of programs and awards to try and promote that in the in the publishing industry and, and to create career authors of different backgrounds. How are you finding it at the end where students are being taught about things, though? Yeah, so I think that there's a, a point that Lucy raised there about what's actually being assessed. And so whilst, just to just build on that, while there is a, a mandate to teach Australian literature, there's no mandate to have that as part of your assessment. So, and we know, um, rightly or wrongly, in a neoliberal environment, what we assess is actually what we're valuing. So if there isn't actually um, an imperative to show some kind of knowledge and understanding of diverse Australian literature, then the imperative for schools and for teachers, uh, yes, you can cover it as part of your curriculum, but to the extent to which you do it, um, how long you spend on it and how much priority it's given is really going to be driven by that assessment process, um, particularly as we we exist within an increasingly high-stakes assessment environment. The reason that, um, and this is not just our work, but work done in in previous years by academics such as Richard Teese has said um, that, in fact, we prioritise canonical literature in high-stakes assessment in Victoria, in the VCE, but in the HSC, in New South Wales and in equivalents in other states – for lots of different reasons. One is that uh, there's many resources on those older, more canonical texts. And so uh, that's one reason that it's there's more resources available to support teachers to teach those texts. The other really obvious one is that most of the teachers have also experienced those texts. And when you're under pressure as a teacher, you have very limited time, you've got a highly bureaucratised kind of world around you, then it's more likely that you're, if you know that these texts are rewarded in examination, there's many resources available and you have a very strong knowledge of them yourself, then 
you can see how that is compelling in terms of perpetuating. And also society has a view, an enduring view, that these texts are very valuable. And so no one's going to argue with anyone about the teaching of Shakespeare. Mm. Um, Whereas what we're sort of arguing for is not that one would neglect or ignore canonical texts. I don't think that there's any danger of white male texts being (laughs) dropped from the reading lists. Um, but, But that we really think about who is in the classroom, what are Australian students looking like now, what is the purpose of reading literature What is the actual reason that we read diverse texts? And it's to make sense of ourselves in the world, in the contemporary world, not just the historical world. Um, You know, we are recovering all forms of Australian fiction. You know, we're we're publishing for the first time narratives by Aboriginal writers that reflect on periods that we haven't had access to those narratives Mm. in, in the past. And we're also reading texts that have been published that have not been in circulation widely. So it's our responsibility to make sure those narratives are in front of students in classrooms but you can see that there are many drivers that would in fact move teachers and schools away from that and and of course this is why part of our work is thinking what kind of support do teachers need so that they feel as comfortable teaching Australian literature diverse Australian literature and we want to obviously make it really clear we're not just talking about dead white males um, but we are talking about really diverse texts representing diverse Australian experiences um, and how do we support teachers to um, have the time and the courage to take on those texts. Absolutely. And in fact, I was going to ask that very question. Lucy, you do, within this um, context, use language that uh, that gives me some hope because we're not just throwing teachers under the bus here, taking into account things like, you know, the duress that many teachers are under, the time frames and sometimes quite difficult sort of circumstances that that they might find themselves against with a very heavy workload. So the language of supporting teachers does seem to offer some kind of a hope that they they may be moving in a direction that that is better for everyone. My question is, though, how likely is that? Uh, because this, we're talking about a nationwide um, issue. And I, I do, while I think that there were very clearly, as you've documented, been a very, you know, great number of, of well-meaning attempts, um, they don't necessarily seem to have borne fruit. How will your research hopefully lead to something different? Or how, how may it? Obviously, I can't assume that you would just suddenly get a block of funding that would cover the whole of the country. Although that would be wonderful. That would be great. <laughs> we would, yes, we would be very keen on that. Um, we're very interested in empowering teachers and having teachers as experts in this area within their classroom. Teachers are highly trained. Teachers teachers know what they're doing in their classroom. One of the key projects that we've been working on is called the Teacher Researchers Project project which is working towards kind of a way in which we can address these issues and the idea of this project is that teachers are experts in Australian literature and they're experts in what their students need in their classroom. We've had five teachers in the pilot version of this project come to the University of Melbourne and work with us in the University of Melbourne archives on a contemporary Australian women's text and this is in partnership with the Stella Prize that we've been doing this work and they do research in the archives around a contemporary text using archival material. The idea of this is that teachers have time, they had a week with us out of their classroom, out of those kind of other external pressures that they have to develop a resource that's going to um, work with their students in their classroom 
and bringing together contemporary texts with archival material around Australian literature. So that's one of the ways that we're looking to see how effective that is with the teachers. The first pilot version's been really successful. The teachers involved have found it a really useful exercise. Um, So we're looking, that's one of the ways in which we're looking to do that. Do you feel like this might offer a blueprint, uh, sort of a pilot program for how future well-meaning attempts may in fact bear fruit? One of the... um all teachers are required to do certain hours of professional learning per year uh, to maintain registration and to um, move through the the, um, the scale of, of teacher proficiency and expertise. So often professional learning is de- is delivered and then teachers can take from that, you know, the things that they think are going to be important. There actually isn't a lack of resources around Australian literature, but what there is, is as Lucy said, is the time for teachers to actually make that context-specific, and then we would see them sharing that knowledge. But, yes, that, that notion of it being a blueprint, that we're, we're really flipping that notion of professional learning as not something that's given to teachers as a package, but something that they're supported to develop themselves. In the way that they develop knowledge about other literary works Mm. and forms as they were preparing to be teachers you know we really need to start at that time rather than you know sort of try and give something else give time and allow teachers to do the intellectual work they can do well I'm afraid we have run out of time although this is a topic that really um, bears much more investigation if people do want to find out a little bit more about this or sign up to be a part of research that any research that may go on in the future or any workshops you might have coming up, how do they get in touch? So we have a website for the suite of work that we're doing, which is the Literary Education Lab, and that's literaryeducationlab.org. If you Google us, you'll find contact details there and information about our projects, including a link to the Teacher Researchers Program. Um, We're about to do a second phase of the Teacher Researchers Project, so we're really keen for teachers to get in touch if they're interested in this work or interested in being involved. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for uh, raising these important issues and doing research that's clearly so desperately needed here. Um, that's just great. Thank you, uh, Dr. Lucy Buzzacott and Associate Professor Larissa, Larissa rather McLean Davies. Thank Thanks you. Thank much. you. Independently yours, Triple R, one hundred two point seven. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.